Today on Against the Grain, the middle of the 19th century, between the abolition of slavery in much of the British Empire and the end of slavery in the United States, is often seen as an age of emancipation. But historian Zach Sell argues that it should be better known as an age of capitalist crisis, upheaval, and warfare. He illustrates how the growth of the British Empire fueled the expansion of slavery in the United States and explores what it tells us about the role of unfreedom in capitalism. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. The mid-19th century was an era of capitalist expansion, fueled by the extension of the British Empire and the massive growth of U.S. slavery. It was a period of unfreedom and rebellion. In his book, Trouble of the World, Slavery and Empire in the Age of Capital, which is published by the University of North Carolina Press, Zach Sell explores the interplay between empire, slavery, and the expansion of capitalism. He's visiting assistant professor of history at Drexel University. Zach, in 1833, Britain had abolished slavery in most of the British Empire, uh, excluding India and Sri Lanka. Can you set the stage for us in the mid-19th century how would you describe the state of capitalism in that epoch, a time, of course, of great upheaval, and the place of slavery within it? Yeah, so this is, on the one hand, the period between um, emancipation across the British Empire, and I guess we could say black emancipation in the United States from you know, 1833 uh, to 1838 with emancipation in the British Empire, and um, you know, 1861 to 1865, the midst of the American Civil War in the United States. This is a period that's often, you know, kind of conceived of and described as an age of emancipation. Um, but, you know, I think that that picture is a little bit incomplete in many ways, because on the one hand, we have the end of slavery across the British Empire. And on the other hand, we have really the, um, you know, explosive growth of slavery in the United States. And what I think is really important to emphasize uh, and, and make clear is that explosive growth of slavery in the United States is really in many ways dramatically connected to emancipation of the British Empire, particularly through the ways in which U.S. slavery produced commodities are really um, flowing into being exported in great volume to Britain, um, fueling industrial uh, capitalist production and factory production and enabling expansion on really an, uh, an unprecedented scale. This is an era of um, where Britain really becomes um, kind of like a even further kind of like heart of industrial capitalism, exporting um, exporting textiles to the world, really becoming the workshop of the world. And, and that rests um, in ways that scholars have really increasingly captured upon US slavery, slavery produced co cotton in particular, but also, um, you know, also other commodities as well. We'll talk a bit more about that, about Britain's acceleration as this manufacturing powerhouse and how the explosion of commodities that were produced under slavery in this period helped fuel that expansion of British manufacturing. Yeah, so this is, on the one hand, the period between um, emancipation across the British Empire and I guess we could say black emancipation in the United States from, you know, 1833 uh, to 1838 with emancipation in the British Empire and, um, you know, 1861 to 1865, the midst of the American Civil War in the United States. This is a period that's often, you know, kind of conceived of and described as an age of emancipation. Um, but, you know, I think that that picture is a little bit incomplete in many ways, because on the one hand, we have the end of slavery across the British Empire. And on the other hand, we have really the, um, you know, explosive growth of slavery in the United States. 
And what I think is really important to emphasize uh, and, and make clear is that explosive growth of slavery in the United States is really in many ways dramatically connected to emancipation of the British Empire, particularly through the ways in which U.S. slavery-produced commodities are really um, flowing into, being exported in great volume to Britain, um, fueling industrial uh, capitalist production and factory production, and enabling expansion on really an, uh, an unprecedented scale. This is an era of um, where Britain really becomes um, kind of like a even further kind of like heart of industrial capitalism, exporting um, exporting textiles to the world, really becoming the workshop of the world. And, and that rests um, in ways that scholars have really increasingly captured upon U.S. slavery, slavery produced co cotton in particular, but also, um, you know, also other commodities as well. What was the role of British finance uh, to grease the wheels of the processes that you're describing and the the kind of mutually reinforcing growth between slavery in the so-called New World and manufacturing in Britain? I guess that we can think of the ways in which uh, slaveholders in the United States are really dependent upon export commodity production. And particularly, I guess we can say the export of cotton in you know in particular to again metropolitan britain and continental europe and that export of of commodities and export of cotton really is you know bringing bringing finance bringing um bringing funding in many different ways finance i guess we should say into the united states uh into the american south and that money is you know being transformed into slavery expansion uh it's being transformed on the one hand into kind of like uh the expansion of lands for for plantations and on the other hand really the expansion of slavery itself so every um you know every annual export of cotton is you know fueling that growth dramatically and it's it's through finance that that's possible how did U.S. slavery helped shape the way that Great Britain saw its own ambitions on the world stage. So I think that this is something that's really kind of like at the heart of Trouble of the World and that I'm, you know, um, I will try to explore it across chapters is the way in which U.S. slavery not only provided um, commodities for uh, the expansion of um, industrial production, slavery produced commodities, you know, fueling uh, factory production, but on the other hand, created a way in which colonial officials and um, manufacturers in different ways looked toward the British Empire to sort of meet uh, the bar that U.S. slavery set and try to think of ways also to surpass that through colonial projects. So those colonial projects uh, took shape in uh, India. On the one hand, they took uh, shape in, uh, in the Caribbean and British Honduras, and they took place also in Queensland, Australia. And across these sites of, of kind of uh, I guess we should say across these colonial projects, Britain really tried to both kind of like look at the dynamism of U.S. slavery and replicate uh, elements of that without replicating U.S. slavery itself. So, in the context of uh, of India, for example, one uh, you know large colonial project um, that scholars have studied, which extends between 1839 and 1849, entailed the relocation of ten U.S. plantation overseers, uh, really to work to introduce um, cotton cultivation uh, across uh, across India from uh, the Bombay Presidency to the Madras Presidency to the Bengal Presidency to the Northwestern Provinces. Um, and, you know, these projects ultimately were not intended to um, replicate U.S. slavery, but nonetheless, they drew extensively upon U.S. slavery in, in efforts to really transform uh, uh, smallhold agrarian production to kind of surpass uh, the demands uh, or to surpass the production of U.S. slavery. Well, what would that look like, or what did that look like on the ground? Really, these projects uh, assumed different forms in their levels of experimentation, but we have, you know, um, sources documenting kind of what plantation overseers were doing. And we also have uh, have information about how uh, overseers were often disrupted in their efforts. And so, you know, one really kind of important example of this, I think, comes from North India, uh, when an overseer uh, is 
essentially trying to extract labor and work, reorganize production, and his efforts are constantly being disrupted. And, you know, the overseer writes about these experiences and says, you know, uh, essentially in a conversation that he records and, and you know, it's, it's very perverse in many different ways uh, uh, with a uh, with someone who he's trying to extract labor from the laborer uh, says to him essentially you are not going to be able to get us to work because um it's what you know essentially you're you have no power over us it's what rom says uh will happen which will happen and so i i emphasize this example because i think it's a it's it's a moment of an archival glimmer of the ways in which kind of colonial projects to, as as realized or as envisioned and kind of fantasies for transformation as envisioned from above were really kind of like constantly disrupted and that's something that i think uh we see not only in in this instance but also in British Honduras, in the projects that unfold there, and in Queensland, Australia as well. But despite those disruptions, uh, you know, these experiments, I think, uh, and, and projects for colonial transformation had really, uh, really devastating violence. And I think thinking uh, kind of like about the implications of that violence ha uh, causes us to kind of like recast and reconsider what it means to describe this as an age of emancipation. Indeed. And just staying for a moment more with the British Empire, um, the kinds of experimentation and sort of self-image that you argue the British drew in their colonial projects from U.S. slavery, to what degree did that extend in the formal empire of Britain and its informal empire? Can, can one separate those as being quite different or are there continuities one sees? Yeah, so that's a really important question. And I think that um, the way that I would I would think about it is it has an has an impact both, you know, in the kind of like formal, uh, you know, formal dim dimensions, formal sites of colonial projects in the British Empire itself, and also in a different way upon kind of the, you know, kind of like imperialism of free trade, which is, is sometimes seen as as the kind of hallmark in, in, in some ways of British imperialism in this era. And so what I mean by that is that in uh, kind of like direct colonial projects organized by uh, British colonial officials, um, there are, you know, there are a multitude of relations, but at the same time, um, a multitude of ways in which one can see this impact. But at the same time, um, outside of outside of that, you know, there's an effort, you know, in in changing tariff policies, for example, which happened happens in the 1840s. Uh, Britain reduced tariffs in order to, you know, gain greater access to slavery-produced commodities and particularly sugar um, from the Caribbean. And so the pursuit of, and from Cuba in particular, I should say, and so the, the pursuit of um, so-called free trade and the empire of free trade, on the one hand, um, it really actually sort of enabled the expansion of uh, the importation of slavery produced commodities. And that's also the case, uh, no doubt, in the United States. So uh, at the same uh, moment when sort of the corn laws, these are tariff reduction policies are passed uh, within Britain, there's a series of tariff reduction policies uh, passed that favor uh, slaveholders in the southern United States. And this kind of like shared pursuit of free trade uh, really enabled the, you know, uh, further exportation of slavery produced commodities and the expansion of U.S. slavery in the, in the process. In the... Historian Zach Sell is my guest. He's the author of Trouble of the World, Slavery and Empire in the Age of Capital. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So uh, you write that three processes operated in, in the period that we're discussing here. That is the perpetuation of plantation society, the creation of white settler societies, and the transformation of work through the capitalist market. And I, I wondered if we could start with the perpetuation of plantation society through the creation of new forms of coercion. What did that look like and, and what forms of coercion did it entail? Yeah, so here I think that, um, you know, a really important 
body of scholarship is, of course, work on Asian indentured labor. And so that scholarship, I think, in many ways has demonstrated that uh, new forms of coercion through indenture um, really as as kind of like moving across and beyond the British imperial world, um, you know, really were at their at their core based upon the perpetuation of plantation society. And so that's something that, um, you know, is, is kind of like at a central part of my own work too. And here, um, you know, a document that I think really is illustrative on this point is produced in 1866 by a British imperial official. And it's written in Hindi and it's called the Kuli Nama, which really means kind of like the tract of coolies. And you can see in this uh, document an effort by the British to kind of uh, recruit North Indian laborers to be taken up uh, into the so-called uh, coolie trade or, uh, you know, in, into uh, situations of in indentured labor. And it, it advertises kind of like sites across the British Empire uh, as, as sites for really relocation. And in the process of doing so, really obscures the kind of like violent relations of plantation production that would entail. So I think that that's, you know, one example. I think that a second example uh, could be taken from uh, British Honduras. And here uh, we can look at projects that landholding companies uh, embarked upon in the 1860s uh, to first um, recruit indentured labor from China. And then in the midst of black emancipation in the United States, there's a turn toward interest uh, in uh, in black laborers, in formerly enslaved people from the United States to relocate to British Honduras to do the work of plantation uh, production. When that project is disrupted, uh, there's a return toward interest in Asian indentured labor, which arrives uh, aboard uh, one vessel um, called the Light of the Age in, in the colony in 1865. And I think here the experience of those laborers is, um, is demonstrative of kind of the new forms of plantation violence that continue to define the kind of putatively post-slavery uh, world or this age of emancipation. And so uh, Asian indentured laborers um, experience is, uh, you know, extremely violent, ends in, uh, it's over 460 laborers arrive and after the first year, over 100 uh, die from the conditions that they, um, that they encounter. And in the in the midst of this, many more uh, abscond from plantations and, and join, uh, uh, join actually with the Santa Cruz Maya, who are engaged in, uh, you know, kind of border conflicts with the British and British Honduras. And in joining with the Santa Cruz Maya, uh, there's an effort by British colonial officials to secure their return. The leader of the Santa Cruz Maya, uh, Belsen, uh, says, you know, this uh, will not be possible because uh, the Chinese who have arrived are Indians like us. And so there's this kind of like interesting um, form of anti-imperial solidarity that emerges in that moment. But then there's also a really significant um, imperial reaction that occurs. And so one element of that reaction is toward trying to um, recruit and bring former uh, slaveholders from the United States and really war-hardened Confederate uh, leaders from the United States to British Honduras to do, on the one hand, the work of plantation uh, expansion and development, and actually, on the other hand, to do the work of settler colonization and border warfare. And I think that um, that, that dynamic is one that we see really unfolding in different ways across, across the empire in this era. And that question of the interplay between the struggle from below and responses from above is a thread that, that runs through your book and that I'll ask you about more. But I wonder if you could just spell out for listeners, staying for a moment more with the question of plantation society being replicated and perpetuated outside of the United States. Can you just lay out for us or spell out for us the difference between enslaved labor and indentured labor? Yeah, so I think here, um, this is a really kind of like crucial point, um, and I'm very happy that you raised it. And I think here uh, we can turn also to um, the great work of W.E.B. Du Bois in Black Reconstruction. Um, 
one of the things that Du Bois says in Black Reconstruction is, you know, kind of like, no matter how degraded uh, the factory hand might be, uh, the factory hand is not real estate. And Du Bois kind of like in Black Reconstruction really spells out the way in which, um, and a few kind of like illustrative passages particularly, the way in which U.S. slavery um, is characterized in, in some sense by what he describes elsewhere as the reduction of Black humanity to real estate. And in those passages, Du Bois too notes the differences between the kind of like violences of slavery and um, and indentured labor as well. And I think that it's really uh, significant to be attentive to those uh, kind of like differences in the conditions of labor and the conditions of enslavement versus bondage or contract and indenture. Uh, yet at the same time, and or just to say in addition, um, it's also significant, significant to see how uh, kind of the plantation as kind of like a racialized mode of production or racialized form of economic production continues even in this age of emancipation. And so I think that um, kind of understanding the dynamic uh, between these processes is, is of great significance. You mentioned a few minutes ago some of the responses to the ferment from below by elites, including creating settler societies. And I wondered if you could just talk about the centrality of the creation of all-white settler societies, which entailed, obviously, the removal and dispossession of Native people and of Black people to allow it to happen. Yeah, so I think that um, this is another really kind of like central structuring dynamic in the period between 1833 and 1870. And I guess that um, across sites, both in the British Empire and within the United States, there's a real kind of like set of concrete racial projects that are based upon creating what what are referred to at that time as white white man's countries, white man's societies. And those projects, um, you know, unfold in in really direct ways. And I guess we could look here towards a plan that um, in a series of kind of like conflicts in Queensland, Australia uh, that that emerge in this era and particularly in the 1860s. And here, um, so, you know, in the midst of kind of mass unemployment in uh, in Lancashire's factories and particularly um, due to the kind of like what is known at the time as the Lancashire cotton famine, there's a series of projects that an immigration official named Henry Jordan uh, kind of like embarks upon to recruit unemployed uh, factory workers to settle and colonize uh, Queensland, Australia. And Jordan's idea essentially at its heart is that, you know, should a white settler society be created in Queensland, Australia, um, uh, there will be, you know, kind of like unemployed factory workers who will be taken up in the work of farming and settling in Queensland. They'll buy textiles, they'll remain in Queensland forever, um, and essentially create an all-white society. There's a countervailing set of plantation interests uh, that essentially say that it is necessary to rely either upon um, Asian indentured labor or uh, labor from the South Pacific uh, to do the work of plantation production. Um, and ultimately, Jordan's interest in creating an all-white settler society lose, lose out in some ways, and there's, there is a turn toward, uh, 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 toward Pacific Island labor in particular to produce sugar. Um, but those ideas of creating a white man's society in their own way um, inspire in a very kind of like global circuit um, efforts of post-slavery uh, post former slaveholder projects uh, in Texas as well to, you know, recruit unemployed um, uh, workers from, from Scotland in one instance, from Europe in other instances, to essentially, uh, you know, colonize and do, uh, settle in the United States and, and work in the place of and instead of formerly enslaved people. And, and here particularly one individual uh, in Texas is, is quite involved in, in these schemes. And I think that, you know, these schemes together, I think, cause us to think um, or raise important questions about the ways in which racial projects and white settler projects also very much inform, uh, inform post-slavery uh, 
post-slavery capitalist production efforts um, that uh, in many ways these projects are about uh, instantiating new forms of white supremacy through uh, particularly uh, indigenous and black dispossessions and in, in new ways essentially and that's you know that's another you know uh, defining feature of this age of emancipation that needs to be um, taken seriously. Historian Zach Sell is my guest. We'll return with him in a moment. listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Today I'm speaking with Zach Sell. He's visiting assistant professor of history at Drexel University. We're discussing his book, which is published by the University of North Carolina Press, titled Trouble of the World, Slavery and Empire in the Age of Capital. Let me ask you about the way that in this period, when we're discussing the period in the mid-19th century, often described as an age of emancipation, but you argue, in fact, actually has an age in which there was an explosion of commodities produced from slavery and it fueled the British Empire and left its deep mark on all of our societies today. And one further element of the processes that you were saying took place in that period was that work was organized racially so that people were compelled to produce commodities or work for wages, or if they didn't, they would face destitution. Tell us about that dimension of the transformations in the mid-19th century. Here, um, a point that I would highlight is that, you know, sometimes that there it, there is kind of an arc in, in particularly certain parts of Marxist scholarship to simply um, write, you know, of kind of the, uh, you know, uh, globalization and global expansion of, of wage labor as the kind of um, defining feature of, of the 19th century. And I think that, um, you know, a huge kind of like part of my work is to try to think of how that um, expansion in some ways and, and expansion in, in reality is deeply connected at the same time to uh, the development or the creation and perpetuation of new forms of, of racially uh, determined coercion. And so I just think that um, rather than writing a narration of kind of the uh, you know, global expansion and proliferation of wage labor uh, without considering kind of the expansion and uh, kind of uh, contemporaneous um, proliferation of, of forms of coercion and, and enslavement as well is too um, is too quick of a, of a of a transition I guess I would say and so um, so that's something that that I really seek to emphasize and and better understand in the book so would it be fair to say then that that in a sense what you're trying to remind us of is that capitalism, is compatible with coerced forms of labor. I mean, wage labor, some would argue, is also coerced in the sense that you, if you don't do it, you end up unable to live. But, you know, in that sort of narrow sense of having some kind of compulsion like being indentured, that that kind of coercion is not a vestige of the past, but something compatible with capitalism itself. Yeah, and I think it's a, a very important point. And I think, you know, uh, um, you know, not just compatible with, but constituted through, um, I think is is really, uh, really significant to emphasize. And of course, um, you know, the ways in which domination in capitalism work does 
you know, depend upon and operate through uh, wage labor in, in, in so many different ways. But as a whole, you know, significant wave of scholarship has emphasized, it's not simply uh, that, and it's, it's a much more um, dynamic, dynamic uh, uh, story. And I think here, um, too, we can think of uh, kind of like the ways in which um, CLR James's work, I think, um, really did much to kind of um, relativize factory production as kind of the, the capitalist form and to instead write a history of the plantation um, and plantation slavery and its aftermath as, as really uh, at, the, at the center of the, the history of, of capitalism. And so something I, I draw upon and, and try to think about in my work as well. How did what you term the making and management of racial difference spread globally as a result of the intersection of U.S. slavery and British Empire? Yeah, so here I think that um, it's important to think about the ways in which slaveholders uh, and from the United States were and overseers were, um, you know, taken up in projects of British colonial expansion and these um, extended from, you know, India as 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 previously discussed in, in British Honduras, but also went far beyond. And also there's a proliferation in print culture of kind of like the managerial practices and techniques of slaveholders in plantation production. And so these uh, forms are really circulating uh, from the United States throughout the British Empire in ways that are informing imaginations for how colonial society might be transformed to really kind of meet and surpass the dynamics of U.S. slavery. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's a history that's, that's really significant to, to emphasize as well. Can you tell us about the revolts of enslaved and colonized people and how they affected precisely these sort of practiced by elites and their ideology. How extensive were revolts in this period? And we're talking about mid 19th century British Empire uh, and beyond. Yeah. And so um, here I'd again, uh, you know, kind of think, you know, sometimes the 19th century uh, in kind of standard accounts, um, such as the work of Karl Polanyi, for example. Mm -hmm. Author of The Great Transformation. Yeah, as often in, in Polanyi's account in The Great Transformation, you know, this is the 19th century in this period is the midst of 100 years of peace. And in reality, um, you know, if we consider kind of the revolts and, and struggles of enslaved people and colonial subjects, this is a year, uh, an era when, there, as Du Bois writes uh, at one point, there's not a single year uh, when the world is not at war in this era. And those wars, though, uh, what Du Bois describes as wars are really kind of uh, the the um, first kind of like uh, rebellions of enslaved people, you know, kind of general strike in the United States of enslaved people um, securing and seizing their freedom, um, but also in in India, in the Indian Rebellion of 1857. And in addition to, um, you know, kind of these more I guess, well-known and dramatic uprisings. It's also a series of everyday uh, uprisings against, uh, you know, kind of plantation rule and against colonial rule that really unfold daily, hourly um, across the British imperial world. And that's something uh, to really keep in mind as kind of undercutting a lot of um, the kind of like fantasies of colonial domination that are, that are circulating in this era as well. Capitalism was beset by crisis in the late 1850s. Uh, what fueled that crisis and, and how was it resolved, if you will? Yeah, so, you know, a really kind of central crisis that my book seeks to kind of rethink the terms are, are you know, kind of uh, the, you know, what is sometimes referred to as the Lancashire cotton famine, um, or sometimes, you know, the, the first, the world's first kind of raw materials crisis, which, you know, dating its exact onset and conclusion is a little bit, um, a little bit difficult, but we can say that um, in many ways it's it it can be pinpointed to uh, the early 1860s. And in in this regard, I think that you know one way in which the the history is often written is to present um, kind of like the blockade of Confederate 
uh, port uh, done by the Union Army, which um, essentially uh, shuts down the exportation of slavery-produced cotton as, as kind of like fueling uh, mass unemployment in, in Lancashire's textile industries, which no doubt depend upon that cotton. But in my research, one thing that um, really kind of has stood out to me as a way to uh, better understand this crisis as a crisis of capitalism itself is the way in which um, earlier, um, in, and particularly here um, in 1860, an outbreak of, uh, and really the onset of famine in India's northwestern provinces uh, shut down um, the exportation of textiles to one of the most important um, export markets for uh, Lancashire manufacturers. And it's the inability, ultimately, um, to export those textiles, to have them be sold in uh, colonial markets, that in some ways um, sets off this crisis before, really, the, the blockade. And I think that, you know, this is a really important point to emphasize and, and consider is that this era of capitalist crisis was not just set forth by changes uh, in the United States and, and uh, kind of this civil war and black emancipation, but also transformations and, um, and breakdowns within and across uh, sites in, in the British Empire as well. How that um, crisis concludes is complicated as well, but we can say that ultimately um, by the end of the decades, there's a, so much has changed on the one hand, and most dramatically, uh, no doubt, black emancipation in the United States, but um, certain dynamics have been restored as well, and here particularly uh, the resumption of the United States as really kind of like one of the, the large exporters of, of cotton in the world, and also at the same time uh, the kind of um, ability to realize the value of textiles produced in in um in lancashire uh, across uh colonial markets in particular the crisis that you've just been talking about in the late 1850s 1860s was the first major crisis of of capitalism and i wanted to know uh how you saw what sort of lessons elites took from that crisis, if you can generalize? Yeah, this is a really important question and one that I, I have to say is, is a little bit um, difficult, difficult to, to answer, I would say. But I think that, you know, one of the, the kind of like, kind of like takeaways in the resolution of this crisis from above, essentially, is that uh, there's, you know, in many different ways, a real kind of resilience of capitalism as a system. So on the one hand, that it's characterized by crisis and breakdown, but on the other hand, that it is a system that nonetheless um, both can and from their perspective must uh, be, be driven forward in, in any way possible. I'm speaking with Zach Sell. He is visiting assistant professor of history at Drexel University. We're discussing his book, Trouble of the World, Slavery and Empire in the Age of Capital. That book is published by the University of North Carolina Press, and you can find a link to it at againstthegrain.org. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is, of course, Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. This is a very big question, but how did the transformations of capitalism and empire fueled by slavery in the mid-19th century, shape what the United States became in the period following the emancipation of the slaves? And to what degree does it shape what the U.S. remains? This is a really significant question. I think that here we might look um, again toward uh, some, you know, really kind of great thinkers on this question. And um, Speaking particularly of the context of uh, kind of like emancipation within the British imperial world, one thing that, uh, you know, the great um, Sylvia Winter says is that, you know, liberal free trade, uh, which in some ways resulted in the emancipation of enslaved people in, in the British Empire, which compensated slaveholders, again, in the British Empire, and ultimately set um, 
uh, formerly enslaved people free within a world dominated by uh, capitalism was really kind of like the first um, the first sketch of monopoly capitalism. And here too, um, in, in another context on uh, speaking particularly about black emancipation in the United States, Du Bois uh, makes a very kind of like similar uh, observation about black emancipation in the United States to say that, um, you know, black freedom in the U.S. Uh, at the same time was attended by the emergence of a new kind of what he describes as both vaster slavery and vaster imperialism that, um, you know, really really set the stage for both uh, 20th century uh, U.S. imperialism and, uh, you know, and also has uh, no doubt implications, um, implications into the present as well. And so I think that to distill points from those really significant observations, uh, one one aspect to think about particularly and to consider more deeply, which, you know, so many uh, uh, great scholars as well have, um, is that, you know, race uh, particularly uh, continues to be a defining feature of capitalism in post-slavery societies and the legacies of slavery in many ways uh, continue to shape how capitalism is uh, is exists in reality and so um, and and so I mean there's just such a multitude of ways in which that expresses itself in the present as well well can you just elaborate a bit more on how, I mean, certainly listeners can say that living in the United States, you can see the ways that racial categories were reinforced by slavery. But in terms of the broader political economy of the United States, how would you say that today it remains marked by that history? Yeah, I mean, here... Um one can look particularly at um, you know the the ever increasing uh, racial wealth gap, gap between uh, black and white households, for example, um, and as that that um, ever expands, that's no doubt um, that's no doubt a part of the legacies of slavery in many different ways. Two, one can think of the way in which uh, the U.S. is and U.S. capitalism is is in so many ways calibrated according to racially determined violences and, and anti-blackness in particular. And one can see that in, uh, you know, the enshrinement of, of killer cops and in, in so many different ways. And, and I think that, you know, um, these are, are just a few examples of the way in which uh, post-slavery capitalism really is, has the signature of slavery and its legacies in it, particularly in the United States. But here it's also uh, really significant to, to emphasize not only in the United States as well. And here I think that one could also consider kind of the um, important scholarship done on the um, leg by the legacies of British slaveholding project at the university at UCL uh, in London. Um, that has traced kind of the the ways in which compensation for slaveholders in across the British Empire to the tune of twenty million pounds contributed, I guess I should say, um, to kind of uh, post emancipation. Um, uh, wealth and investment in metropolitan society. And here, in addition, um, Chris Manjapra, a uh, scholar, has traced how uh, the the loans for that money were really uh, repaid by uh, the, the British Treasury only only in the last um, in the last decade or so, and even uh, very recently. And so these are these are some of the direct legacies that just scratch the surface, I would say. You mentioned the term real estate early in the program, and I wanted to ask you about the notion. What do you mean by saying one of the legacies here is keeping real estate white? Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, so the book kind of like the first chapter of the book looks at kind of how Du Bois defined uh, one of the the particular aspects of U.S. slavery in terms of real estate. And this, the book, kind of the last chapter of the book, um, examines what 
post-slavery real estate um, looked like and meant. And here, um, you know, it's it's important to return to kind of the uh, story of, um, you know, in history of the refusal to redistribute land to formerly enslaved people in the United States. And that refusal of redistribution uh, really set the stage for um, for post-slavery uh, black dispossessions in, in a variety of ways. And of course, this occurs in the context of kind of ongoing indigenous dispossession and, tra and travesty in the United States as well. One of the things that um, post-slavery observers note is that slaveholders, uh, and here this is someone who's directly involved in in land redistribution projects as a, as a member of the House of Representatives, is, you know, he says, um, person whose name is George Washington Julian says that slaveholders uh, essentially won the Civil War uh, by, uh, you know, being able to continue to claim and own the land of plantations, which uh, rested on kind of a, an arbitrary and indefensible basis. And that did no doubt set the stage for kind of the process of keeping real estate white, as I describe it, to kind of con continue to enshrine whiteness as a form of property um, in the United States and to define the conditions on which, uh, you know, capitalism in the United States would continue uh, in so many different ways to be racially determined by uh, the legacies of slavery on the one hand and, and settler colonialism on the other, which were also at the heart of the formation of slavery, real estate in the sense described and defined by Du Bois as well. As you mentioned, uh, many historians, uh, including many historians on the left, have very fruitfully engaged with the question of the relationship between slavery and empire within capitalism. Uh, historians like Eric Williams, you mentioned W.E.B. Du Bois. Why do you think that this has been an area of such scrutiny and study? And for you, what made you decide to revisit some of these questions? Did you feel like other historians had tried to resolve questions that you found wanting? Or uh, is it something else that makes so many of us on the left return to this period? Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's it's really kind of a, a, a you know, the relationship between slavery and capitalism um, is, you know, of such significance because its implications, I think, are great. And I think it's, you know, no doubt for uh, those of us who, you know, um, are influenced by and, and read Marx, it's also a way in which Marx raises such interesting questions that uh, are left in many ways, uh, you know, kind of uh, left undetermined, essentially. And so I think that that's, that's a huge part of, of the reason for the inquiry. And, and here, um, kind of the way I see my own book is entering into that um, kind of like really robust debate and set of conversations is, you know, to, to think about, you know, how, so how histories of kind of like slavery structured capitalism look differently when written um, across, uh, you know, sites of empire and sites of slavery, essentially. So not just uh, within the context of U.S. slavery as part of U.S. capitalism or kind of uh, slavery within the British imperial world as part of um, the history of kind of like British capitalism, but to think across sites of empire, to think of how slavery is constitutive of, of kind of global capitalism itself. And so I also thought that um, writing those histories to not just focus on histories of slavery in the Atlantic world, but the kind of deep sets of connections uh, to um, South Asia and to the Pacific world, um, no doubt is, is significant as well, because I think on the one hand, it helps us better understand um, how slavery was constitutive of capitalism in this era. And at, on the other hand, helps us understand how colonial projects outside of Atlantic world slavery were both shaped by Atlantic world slavery and also, and crucially, shaped um, Atlantic world slavery. And so so those um, kind of uh, global connections, I guess we could say, and ways to rethink um, histories of capitalism uh, really, uh, really inform my book. And I, I see it not as 
um, kind of rewriting those histories, but contributing to, you know, different perspectives, I, I would say. Well, let me just end by asking you if you feel like there's, for all the reasons that you mentioned, a renewed interest in um, some of these questions and trying to, particularly in the United States, think through the relationship between slavery and capitalism, given the kind of political ferment that has been going on, at least for the last decade, in which race and capitalism have been scrutinized in a way that has been more intense than in the period before it. Yeah, and I, th I think you're exactly right. And that's definitely the case. And I think here too, of course, uh, the kind of um, return to uh, and, and really uh, important return to the really foundational work of Cedric Robinson on racial capitalism and in Black Marxism has been deeply influential. And it's, it's exactly right. It's because I think that uh, the way in which race and capitalism, anti-Blackness and capitalism are so deeply connected in creating the devastating realities of the present uh, has been, you know, understandably and necessarily attended by consideration of just how long uh, lasting, uh, you know, how long that history of devastation has been, and also how it continues to extend and express itself into the present. Zach Sell, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Zach Sell is a historian. He's visiting assistant professor of history at Drexel University. We've been discussing his book, Trouble of the World, Slavery and Empire in the Age of Capital. And that book is published by the University of North Carolina Press. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. Radio Against.